I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. and thank you for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and we have another doozy of an episode for you today, but first, some quick housekeeping. I want to thank all of you that have given the show a five-star rating. 73 people have taken the time to support the show on iTunes, and it really does mean a lot to me. I especially want to thank Archer Nova, Nap underscore Sack, and EMT underscore Hank, for writing the the most recent excellent reviews. Thank you very much, guys. It really does mean a lot. And uh, if you have the time and you haven't already done it, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that you can to help grow the show. The more people that listen, the better the show will be. Don't forget, if you go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, just search Cauldron Podcast, and you'll get access to... A lot of cool images, videos, and the weekly live stream. The live stream is a lot of fun right now. We are reviewing the show on Netflix, the newest docu-series called The Greatest Events of World War II in Color. So uh, watch and join us for the discussion there. Also, starting December 8th, only on Instagram, I'll be setting up polls to pick the battles we cover in uh, for each month in 2020. So check that out if you want to have any say in what we cover next year. Um, And don't forget also, you can find us on pretty much every platform that you can listen to uh, podcasts on. So we're on iTunes, we are on Spotify, CastBox, uh, Overcast, all the different platforms. So check us out wherever you can. All right, all right, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. The English poet Siegfried Sassoon famously wrote, quote, I died in hell. They called it Passchendaele, end quote. The First World War was an incubator for man-made hellscapes and mechanized death. Each passing season brought some new horrid way for mankind to inflict suffering on itself. Like Dante's Inferno, each fresh hell had a name. The Marne, Verdun, the Somme, Tannenberg, Gallipoli, the Isonzo, the Kaiserschlacht. But of these now infamous names, no battle of the Great War was quite like the human experience at Passchendaele. The Third Battle of Ypres played out like a fever dream, full of ghastly visions, insane scenery, and the theater of the macabre. Most of our mental picture, collectively, of the Great War, the the bodies or parts of bodies lying still in rolls of barbed wire, the bloated horse bellies half-submerged in the inky water of shell craters, men ordered by fools to be cut down for nothing but a few measly yards, most of these images come from Passchendaele. It's odd, then, that this titanic slugfest, the ultimate test of man versus man versus nature, has gone somewhat forgotten. The memory of Passchendaele has been replaced in France with the blood and rubble of Verdun, in Great Britain with the sadly romantic Somme, in the U.S. by the bravery of Bella Wood, and in Germany, by those final murderous offensives. For those that lived in the mud, though, the memory of that place 
was seared into their minds forever. It's for those men on both sides, now likely all past, that we remember that there was once a place on earth that men called hell, and there they went to die. By 1917, the First World War had long ago reached the impasse point. What was supposed to be a quick fight had devolved into a massacre. With the rise of technology and booming populations, armies were bigger and better equipped than ever before. Machine guns had proven their deadly ability while guarding no man's land. Trains made moving millions manageable, and planes blew the fog of war away, giving artillery guns the vision of a soaring hawk. And those artillery guns, my God, they were huge, capable of flinging massive projectiles, some the size of small cars, for miles on end. Some of the most massive guns could only be moved by rail and required hours to load, aim, and fire. These leaps of progress in the field of war-making were on full display between August of 1914 and the late summer of 1917. The speed of mobilization in 14 had turned a maybe war into an inexorable fact. As the two sides settled in for the long haul, 15 was a year spent planning and testing and entrenching. In 1916, the year was the season of death. Verdun was an organized, intentional charnel house. The Germans almost broke the French nation in some of history's most intense fighting around the old fortress town. At the Somme, the British army had the worst day in its long, storied history. The months-long battle that followed foreshadowed for the British what evil things were to come. Then, in the spring of 1917, the much-touted and highly-anticipated breakout attempt known as the Nivelle Offensive was launched. Designed as a lightning strike to the German heart, Nivelle's plan and his men died on the barbed wire. The battle was an utter disaster and failure and pushed the French to the very edge of collapse. These major battles were only the main events for a circus of misery that included hundreds of smaller acts. All up and down the front, small-scale and medium-scale fighting happened regularly. The Western Front was not the only show in town, either. There was the fiasco of the Dardanelles, the dogged Italians in the Alps fighting seven, eight, nine-plus battles of the Isonzo River, German brilliance in Africa, Japanese uh, opportunism in the Pacific, and most fatefully, the comedy of errors that was the Eastern Front. The strategic situation that led to the Passchendaele battle was a combination of crises. The quickly crumbling Russian Empire was becoming a non-player, and that meant that dozens of fresh German divisions in the east would soon be available and shipped west. The French were still trying to recover from the Nivelle offensive failure, and the new general in charge, Pitan, had his hands full, trying to discreetly deal with a number of mutinies throughout the army. The Germans, though, were starving, and they needed to make something happen, but they couldn't do anything on land until those eastern divisions came over. More and more, the U-boat war took on a kind of magic pill mythology. It was believed by the German higher-ups in the uh, German military that a weapon like the U-boat had the ability to change the war in Germany's favor. But instead of an antidote, once the German generals forced their government to support unrestricted U-boat warfare, all hell broke loose. The German high command hoped that the U-boat attacks would bring Britain to its knees and the Allies to the negotiation table. 
The Germans believed that if the U-boats could destroy somewhere around 600,000 tons of shipping a month, that the little island nation would buckle. It was, at first, a very, very close-run thing. The first couple of months, it seemed like there might be a chance that the U-boats would succeed. But Britain eventually fended off the attacks and survived, and the Germans only succeeded in bringing the United States into the war. The British position at this point was fairly straightforward, but far from simple. The Americans were coming, but nobody at the time knew when they would come or or even what exactly their help would look like. They had a tiny army, and it had never really fought a large European-style war So outside of the continental United States. So it wasn't really known what the, uh, the Americans would be bringing to the table. The French had some in-house issues to fix before they could realistically fight in any major offensives. Uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Russia was doomed and, and really soon would be out of the war entirely. Eventually, Russia, with the revolution, collapses, the czarist government collapses, and Russia goes into a, an extremely violent civil war of its own. And uh, when that happens, the Entente forces that are currently being pinned down on the Eastern Front end up being totally free and allowed to ship over to the Western Front. So the British wanted to act before these eastern divisions of the German army moved into the line in the west. They also had to put an end to the U-boat nightmare, which might not have been winning the war by any means, but it was certainly putting a lot of strain on life back on the home front in, in Britain. The strain was, was not, the, the food strain in particular was not sinking the island, but it was enough of an issue that by 1917, civil unrest was, if not quite blazing, was certainly smoldering. There were a number of U-boat bases on the North Sea and on the Channel Coast, and the British hoped to at least... Uh, if they could get rid of them in some kind of offensive, they would be able to at least limit the U-boat range, if not stop it entirely. And finally, the best reason the British generals had for mounting a fresh assault in the West was that they believed the food shortages and the constant pounding the Germans were dealing with had taken a toll. Between uh, attrition at the front and starvation and discontent at home, Germany was no doubt in rough shape, but it was incorrectly thought that if punched hard enough, Germany would finally go down. So British High Command and the Allies had plenty of reasons to move on to the offensive again. Now the only real problem was to figure out when, where, and how the next blow would be struck. From the halls of power in London and Paris to the muddy trenches at the front, everyone knew that the next big attack was coming sometime in the summer of 1917. The more difficult thing was to figure out where that attack would be delivered. The British Prime Minister, fiery Welshman David Lloyd George, called for an indirect approach. He believed that if the Allies fully supported the Italians in the southern portion of the, the front, that the Germans would be forced to focus on that theater and bolster the Austrians. The distraction would give France and Britain some much-needed breathing room so that they could recover their footing. It would also eat up time, and time was the most critical resource that the Germans lacked and had no way of gaining more. Every day that passed, the growing might of the United States matured and got ever closer. Lloyd George believed, rightly, that the Austrians were more a hindrance to the Germans at this point than they were a help. In fact, it, it was true that the Austrians were a dead weight and actively were seeking ways out of the war. Germany, to avoid being alone in the fight and bearing the full weight of all the Allied attention, forced the Austrians 
to stick in the battle to the bitter end. So, Lloyd George called for, for more artillery and supplies to go to the Italian front and for the Allies to sit tight on the Western Front until the Americans arrived. His commander in the field felt entirely different. Field Marshal Douglas Haig made an appearance in our podcast about the Somme, so if you want more of a bio on him, be sure to check that episode out. By the time of Passchendaele, though, Haig had long ago taken over as head of the BEF and had been the man behind that uh, disastrous uh, affair on the Somme. Haig was a confident cavalryman, and he believed whatever it is that he wanted to believe with a fanatic's certainty. He envisioned the upcoming battle as the much-hoped-for breakout. By smashing the Germans in Flanders and then swooping north in a wide haymaker, Haig would bring an end to the U-boat attacks and the deadlock. He even believed that once the German infantry broke, his favorite unit, the cavalry, would have their shining moment. Haig was a true, a, a real elitist military snob. It crushed him that this new war, what with its machine guns and trenches, lacked the mobility and grace of a bygone age. Haig wanted to show that the BEF was a first-rate army capable of saving the day, and that the Empire could settle this whole thing without much help from the French or the New World coming to its aid. In the struggle between Prime Minister and Commander-in-Chief as to who would get their way, it turned out Commander-in-Chief Haig would win. By June 21st, the colossal offensive into Flanders was grudgingly green-lit. With everything the BEF had, they would strike out from the Ypres salient and into Flanders. From there, Haig hoped the dominoes would fall and by Christmas the war would be over. The news of the offensive was no secret, as the bitter fight between Prime Minister and Field Marshal was widely publicized. Because of this, the Germans now knew where the blow would be struck. The Ypres salient was always the most likely place, but they now had confirmation. As for Lloyd George, he wanted more power over the war's direction, so the publicity leaks served a purpose. He wanted people to see that he was against the upcoming attack and that Haig was all for it. Passchendaele was the last gasp of military leaders having full control of the wars they fought. After this battle, the politicians took more and more of an active role in the direction and methods of fighting. Lloyd George was not happy with the offensive, but he recognized a win-win situation. If there was a success, the war would end. If there was a failure, Haig would be to blame, and the government would have more power to command the generals. Lloyd George would indeed have the last morbid laugh, as the disaster to come proved the perfect amount of rope for Haig to hang himself. The public was about to witness another horror show even more significant than the Somme, and the generals were the only ones to blame. With a tepid go-ahead from his government, Haig plowed forward with his planning. He hoped to have a sizable amount of French support, but was quickly made to realize this was not possible. The Nivelle operation had so badly shaken the French army that hundreds of mutinies were happening all over the French line. The brave but weary Poilu promised to defend the trenches if needed, but refused to attack. Neither the British nor Germans knew the true extent of the French unrest. Pitain was forced to negotiate with the unhappy soldiers, and he feared that to push them too soon into another bloodbath would be trouble. So Pitain informed Haig he would not be getting the full support initially agreed upon. Haig, undeterred, went forward with only a small contingent of French soldiers for his plan. The rest of the offensive would be made up of British Army regulars and Dominion forces. The Anzac and Canadian troops would soon again prove their incredible ability to rise to any occasion, as we will see. 
Haig would use these men in combination with an ever-growing air arm and the new yet-to-be-fully-understood tank as part of his total operation. The first real, concerted, modern, combined arms offensive had many objectives, but only one goal, breakout. The objectives of Haig's offensive were, if not random, then at the very least, scattered. Haig, first and foremost, wanted to grind the Germans down. In World War I, death became basically the objective of, of many, many battles, like, uh, like Verdun. This wearing down, grinding kind of action was the German army's worst nightmare. The Allies possessed so much more in the way of supplies, men, machines, and general military weight that the grinding could go on indefinitely. The Germans even had a word for this. They called it Materialschlacht. After inflicting heavy losses and exhausting the Germans in a Materialschlacht, the BEF would strike north to secure the Belgian coastline. This would remove the immediate threat of the U-boat bases on the English Channel and on portions of the North Sea. And this was, uh, these bases were less than 30 miles from the main BEF supply ports, so these, these bases were very important. At the same time, Haig hoped to take the Passchendaele Ridge, a slightly elevated line that would connect his army with the Dutch frontier. The most dangerous aim of the offensive from the German side of things was the Rulers' attack. Rulers was a significant rail hub that supplied the entire northern sector of the Western Front for the Germans. If Rulers fell, the logistical situation for the German army would get very dicey. It would also become extremely difficult to move men into the area for a counterattack to retake the uh, Flanders sector. And finally, Haig wanted to seal the whole deal with a flashy drive along the coastline that would in concert work with amphibious landings to put the proverbial bow on the entire operation. Haig's plan was great if it had been 1812 or even 1941. A broad front and long sweeping lines with fast-moving spearheads was just not in the cards in 1917. Offensives for both sides tended to reach an objective and then overextend themselves. Then the inevitable counterattack would dislodge the exhausted and poorly supplied and supported now defenders. Then the cycle would repeat over and over. Breakout as Haig envisioned just was impossible. Yet. Now, that's not, however, to say that offensives could not succeed in 1917. Only a few short weeks before Haig's big push, there was a successful attack against the Germans right in the Ypres sector. General Herbert Plumer, a man loved by his men for his respect and care for them, showed how to fight this new war, and he showed it best. Plumer was in charge of the Messinay Ridge, an elevated area in the southern part of the Ypres salient. Knowing that an attack would be ordered at some point, Plumer had his engineers sink 19 mine chambers under the German positions in front of him. These chambers were then packed with millions of pounds of explosives. For three weeks leading up to the attack, Plumer had his artillery pound the Germans to the tune of some 3.5 million rounds being fired. Then on June 7th, the bombardment ceased, and there was a brief silence. Then the mines were blown, and the world exploded. The sound made by the explosion was heard clearly in London, and was considered the loudest man-made noise until the atomic bomb. 
The mines caused such devastation that whole German units were vaporized, and the geography of the ridge was literally altered. Captain Robert Cuthbert said of the mine blasts, quote, Then the whole earth was shaken by the effect of the mines. The trenches rocked and trembled, and I fully expected that they would cave in. The whole surroundings right along the battlefront were weirdly lit up by the flash from them. The largest mine on the front was close to us, containing 20 tons of gun cotton. So I will endeavor to describe the effect of this one. All were on the tiptoe of expectation for this one to be sprung. Our first warning that she was fired was by sounds like distant rumblings of thunder. Then, gradually getting closer, then directly to our front, the earth was seen to be rising like a huge mushroom, suddenly to be flung into space with an awe-inspiring roar, and the earth trembled. To me, it appeared as if with mingled fear and relief, fear of the dread power she had stored in her bowels, relief because it had vented its fury, and although she was sadly torn, its menace gone. End quote. When the BEF soldiers advanced into the craters and surrounding trenches, they found either nothing or men so fractured by the bombardment they could not resist. The BEF infantry advanced and secured their new positions with minimal casualties. The advance eventually petered out after extending further than the prearranged stopping point, but the whole affair was a huge victory. In a matter of hours, Plumer's careful, meticulous plan had achieved its modest but reasonable goals. Messinet had secured the southern flank of the Ypres salient, inflicted sizable German losses, and given a roadmap for bite-and-hold technique. What Haig should have seen as the right way to use attrition against the Germans he instead saw as a green light for his plan to go forward into Flanders. Egg was not wholly insane, though. He recognized that Plumer had been onto something at Messinet Ridge, and so he adjusted his plan in some ways. Where the Nivelle Offensive had hoped for a breakthrough within hours of the start time, Haig planned for successive bites into the German defenses. Three lines were drawn up with the final one encompassing uh, the city of Passchendaele itself. Haig would set up the most extensive bombardment of the war to date, hoping to destroy or disable the defenders. Then an advance of 6,000 yards would halt and dig in. At that distance, the infantry would be within range of support artillery. As the infantry fended off counterattacks, the artillery would move up in stages. Then the process would begin again, Bit by bit, the BEF planned to burrow its way through the German lines. It was bite and hold on a considerable scale. Haig's plan in the official British history of the battle was called, quote, super optimistic and too far reaching, end quote. The French commanding uh, general Pitan said the idea was, quote, certain to fail, end quote, and Foch the soon-to-be uh, generalissimo of the entire Allied forces and maybe the best general to come out of World War I, said of the plan, quote, it was futile and fantastic, end quote. There are so many reasons why Haig's battle plan was doomed, but the obvious one is the geography of this part of Flanders itself. The Ypres salient, which, uh, just in case you aren't aware, and I encourage you strongly to grab yourself a map, go online, 
grab a book, whatever it might be, check out a map of the Third Battle of Ypres, and you'll see clearly what a salient is. But essentially, it's uh, if you're familiar with the Battle of the Bulge, it's essentially the same thing. It's basically a protrusion or a bulge in a line. So this particular one had a bulge or salient around the town of Ypres, and the bulge went towards the east, or, or the bulge uh, bulged out into the German lines. And it was created in the direst moments of 1914. As the German wave crashed into France, the Allies backpedaled as far as they could, and then they had to stop and fight. The miracle on the Marne had saved Paris, and the first desperate Battle of Ypres had stopped the Germans dead. This tiny northwestern corner close to the coast was the only Belgian soil left free of the German invaders. With the channel ports and rulers rail hub nearby, neither side could afford to give up the ground, imperfect as it was for trench warfare. In fact, as we will see in a little bit, the ground was so soft and poorly, uh, it, w it was just not something that you could dig into, that there were really few trenches in this area. Uh, most of the defensive structures were built above ground. Uh, in an attempt to pinch off the bulge in their line, the Germans tried again to attack in the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915. This time, they debuted poison gas to devastating effect. Somehow, though, the British held on, even though the Germans had gained ground, uh, and the British were able to stop them eventually. Now, the German trench lines and artillery were a scant two miles from the beautiful old city of Ypres. Sergeant John Bryce recalled his first time seeing the salient, quote, I don't suppose there is any place on earth in quite such a mess as the surface of the earth surrounding Ypres. For over six miles in depth, the land is nothing but a sea of shell craters, the majority of which are full of water, end quote. Wipers, to most of the British soldiers that passed through it, Ypres was an ancient Belgian center of cultivation. Its cloth hall and medieval ramparts bore witness to a long and storied history. After years of German artillery fire, though, the cloth hall and surrounding city were in ruins. Rubble and jagged stalagmite-like columns were all that was left of the once beautiful city by 1917. Sergeant William Wilson had seen the Somme, and nothing shook him like his first time in the Ypres district. He wrote, quote, The Somme was pretty bad, I'll admit, but this was worse. I have never seen such destruction. It is hard to imagine four years ago peaceful people tilled this same soil, that it was one of the most prosperous districts in Europe. Now, as I saw it today, well, it's simply an awful nightmare. A hideous, reeking swamp seething with living and dead beings. A place that stamps itself on one's mind and memory like a red-hot iron, end quote. The land around the town was low-lying Flanders plains with fertile, dark soil that had been farmed and cultivated and manured for centuries. Like the city of Ypres, the ground was left in shambles by the constant shelling. Huge craters pockmarked the countryside. From small to enormous, these shell holes became reeking fetid pools when the weather and ground conspired to fill them with water. The water table in the Flanders area of Ypres was in uh, very close to the surface. In most cases, digging a mere 18 inches could pull water. As the water level rose, anything, man or beast, that couldn't climb or scurry up the slick, sheer sides of these shell craters would slowly drown. Ypres itself sits less than 100 feet above sea level. It's surrounded by ridges running in a large amphitheater shape encompassing the city's eastern border. All this high ground, in many cases 200 feet or more above sea level, was held by the Germans. This area was so flat and low that even the small height gained by these ridges was critical for the artillery. 
Private Len Cooley knew the danger that the ridges around Ypres posed. Quote, the whole countryside looked forbidding. It was a sea of mud caked dry only on the surface, with shattered trees marring the landscape. Beyond, towards the slopes, I could see the scarred ridges of the front line. These belonged to the Germans, who had an uninterrupted view of the greater part of us. It looked exactly like what it was, a shell-torn, muddy, and dreary waste. It was probably the most uninviting and unhealthy place in the world, end quote. The city of Ypres was sitting in a bowl, and all along one rim, German artillery could sight and fire without being seen. The opposite was true for the British. Every movement was watched and targeted with little chance of retaliation. Ypres might have been the starting point and a dangerous place to be, but Passchendaele was the end zone. At around 150 feet above sea level, this small Belgian town gave its possessor an excellent firing platform. Halfway between Ypres and rulers almost exactly, Passchendaele gave perfect fields of fire and vision in every direction, which is essentially why both sides so desired the small, formerly sleepy Belgian town. If the BEF wanted to win, they would need to take these high points and hold them. If the Germans wanted to renew the offensive into France in 1918, they would need to keep these areas as a staging point. The British needed to build up and prepare on a titanic scale if they had any hope of winning the heights in Flanders. As commander of the BEF, Haig had total control over who he picked to lead the offensive. With no real oversight or counterbalance, it's no surprise that he chose a man cut from the same cloth as himself. Hubert Goff was a brash and dash cavalryman. Goff had risen rapidly during the war, performing well at Luce and the Somme. He was devoted to the breakout myth almost as thoroughly as Haig himself. As the coming battle played out, he began to question some of the plans he was ordered to act on, but overall, Goff was a yes-man, willing to feed Haig what he wanted to hear. Goff was given command of the center of the line, and so he was accountable for the central portion of the battle. Holding his right, or southern flank, was the victor of Messinay Ridge, General Plumer. Plumer cared deeply for his men doing his best to limit their casualties and their time in the line. The Ypres sector became well known as a hellhole. The men appreciated a general that cycled them out of the bowl regularly. With Plumer in the south, Goff could be reasonably sure his flank there was solid. General Francois Antone held Goff's left flank to the north, a solid, if unremarkable, French commander. As these generals worked over the plans for the oncoming attack, the buildup at Ypres continued. Day and night, men and supplies moved into position all over the salient. For the majority of the young men in the war, farm boys and small-town kids, the size of the war was baffling. Young New Zealand machine gunner Douglas McLean was in awe. Quote, the more I see of this war, the greater I am struck with the magnitude of it. This morning, I biked up to the line to have a look at the roads. The traffic in itself is an eye-opener, greater than anything London or Paris can show. Day and night, bomb or shell, it goes up, an unending stream of men and munitions. And this is only one of dozens of roads that feed this front, end quote. Offensives on the Western Front simply devoured men and material. Because they held the high ground, the Germans saw this build-up as it was happening. This also further confirmed that the area around Ypres was the location of the next big push by the Allies. 
Haig was scraping together divisions from all over and having them brought in by train and truck. Every night, traffic jams would gridlock the area around Ypres as lorry drivers tried to drop off their loads and escape the killing zone before sunup. Anything of size that moved around during the day would find itself harassed by well-hidden German guns. The British artillery tried to fight back by setting up camo bluffs and using terrain features to hide muzzle flashes, but there was only so much they could do. German artillery teams became experts at spotting muzzle flashes and hidden gun emplacements. Of course, one thing that the Germans lacked was a strong air arm. That's not to say that they didn't have aces. Over Flanders is where the Red Baron and a lot of the aces earned their fame. Um, and his, the Red Baron's gang of legendary uh, of fighters were a common sight over Flanders. But the Germans, like in, in so many different situations, could not keep up with the mass production of the Allies, as we would also see in 20 years after the war in World War II. The French and British... Planes were coming out faster and in more significant numbers, and also with increasing technological advances. It's important to remember that planes at this time were almost like weekly. There was some advance being made on on planes, on fighters, and and bombing technique. Um, The the other thing to keep in mind is that pretty early on, the British were, were dominant in the air. The problem with these planes, though, was that they were fair-weather fighters in the truest of forms. In cloudy, stormy, or foggy weather, they became useless as spotters or bombers or strafing uh, units. So the unusually crappy weather that we're about to experience as we move into the actual Battle of Passchendaele would keep the, uh, keep the air force of both sides grounded for a good portion. Um, and we won't really see the British planes taking a, a huge significant role Um, after the initial phase until quite a bit uh, later in the battle itself. As the Allies built up their forces and began to prepare for the giant battle to come, Erich Ludendorff, the first quartermaster general of the whole German army, looked on. Ludendorff was a brilliant, if flawed man. He had a quick, incisive mind that devoured numbers and details. He was personally brave and fearless in battle and truly believed in the cause. There's an incredible story of Ludendorff at the Battle of Liège. And uh, Ludendorff walks right up to the the doors of this this walled city and demands its surrender, um, clearly showing that he, he was fearless in battle. He was also, though, a humorless, anxious, stubborn man that was quick to point fingers when his plans failed and would eventually have a number of mental breakdowns towards the end of the war. I find this Ludendorff guy fascinating, and I really can't wait to get into his his baby, his mastermind, the Kaiserschlacht of 1918. But that's for a later episode, so we'll stick with what he does in 1917. And uh, in 1917, he was in charge of the entire Western Front, And along with his military partner, Paul von Hindenburg, these two men were the heroes of Tannenberg in the beginning of the war, Ludendorff ran what what worked out to be the almost the entire war effort of Germany. Uh, By the end of the war, not only are the German generals dictating what's happening in the field, but they're also pretty much controlling the home front and the government. So uh, Ludendorff is an extremely powerful man within the Kaiser's uh, Germany. Knowing the Ypres salient was about to go hot, Ludendorff had to, keep, uh, had to take steps to make sure that the sector of the line was held and that Passchendaele and, more importantly, rulers remained in German hands. The salient itself was under the command of Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, Ruprecht was competent. Uh, he was a career soldier. He understood his role as an organizer and as an order follower. Uh, he was never brilliant, but he was also never uh, responsible for anything completely stupid. Um, a fairly middling soldier, uh, with may, may, middling to above average soldier. Uh, directly under Ruprecht was Sixt von Armen. And he was a reliable general, brave and steady, but without any claim to genius. 
The two generals were able enough, but the coming offensive would be on a vast scale, and Ludendorff was afraid that they would be overcome by the task ahead. And because of the ruler's connection to this area, Ludendorff had to make sure that these two men were well prepared for what was coming. Luckily for him, Ludendorff had a guy. Fritz von Losberg was a defensive wonderkind. As the war turned into a stationary affair where the defender held all the cards, specialists that understood defense became essential. Losberg had an excellent vision for geography and how best to use the land defensively. He was a floating chief of staff known as the, quote, Fireman of the Western Front, end quote. Wherever things were the hottest, that's where Losberg went. He even had essentially veto power for generals that outranked him. If Losberg spoke, people listened, even Ludendorff himself. Losberg was sent to the salient and almost immediately began to redraw the German defensive plan. The Germans had a series of six trench positions running from just east of Ypres to Passchendaele. In between the trench lines were strong points like fortified farms, defended villages, and prearranged kill zones. Struggling through the mud and these obstacles, it was believed that the offensive would peter out and die. To further exhaust the advancing British, most of the German generals wanted to pull back to the second or even the third line of trenches. Losberg countered the order. He instead wanted to uh, hold the Minen Ridge and the Pilkham Ridge, these high grounds east of Ypres. And he believed that if they were made into the Schwerpunkt, which means the point of most interest or most effort, that they would be enough to hold the attackers back. So instead of pulling men back, he wanted to reinforce these high ground ridges because if they were held, then he thought the entire line could be held successfully. These ridges would give German infantry accurate artillery support while depriving the British of good observation points. Losberg's abilities would be tested in the coming weeks, and the fate of the German war effort would hang in the balance. The battle is about to begin, but let's pause here and talk about the most infamous part of Passchendaele, the mud. A combination of centuries of cultivation intricate drainage and irrigation systems and a water table very close to the surface work together to turn the earth into slop. Canals and culverts had for decades drained the farms around Ypres and Passchendaele. As these were destroyed, drainage became a huge issue. Added to the water table and the low elevation of the area, the whole saline area became a muddy mess. The Daily Mail journalist William Beach Thomas wrote of the conditions, quote, Floods of rain and a blanket of mist have doused and cloaked the whole of the Flanders Plain. The newest shell holes, already half-filled with soakage, are now flooded to the brim. The rain has so fouled this low, stoneless ground, spoiled of all natural drainage by shellfire, that we experience the double value of the early work. For today, moving heavy material was extremely difficult, and the men could scarcely walk in full equipment, much less dig. Every man was soaked through and was standing or sleeping in a marsh. It was a work of energy to keep a rifle in a state fit to use. End quote. Years of artillery fire in both directions had cratered the Ypres salient into a lunar landscape. And remember, these craters rapidly filled with water from below and rain from above. The rain at Passchendaele went on and off for the entirety of the offensive. That's months and months and months. August, which was historically a dry month, in 1917 was full of rain and damp, moist weather. Everything and everyone was wet all the time. Even on rain-free days, the men couldn't dry out because they were sitting in muddy holes. Robert Sheriff of the East Surrey Regiment wrote, quote, The living conditions in our camp were sordid beyond belief. 
The cookhouse was flooded, and most of the food was uneatable. There was nothing but sodden biscuits and cold stew. The cooks tried to supply bacon for breakfast, but the men complained that it smelled like dead men. At dawn on the morning of the attack, the battalion assembled in the mud outside the huts. I lined up my platoon and went through the necessary inspection. Some of the men looked terribly ill. Gray, worn faces in the dawn, unshaved and dirty because there was no clean water. I saw the characteristic shrugging of their shoulders that I knew so well. They hadn't had their clothes off for weeks, and their shirts were full of lice. End quote. And the mud itself became a treacherous enemy. Flanders' soil was fertile and dark, but just beneath was silty clay. As the top and bottom layer was mashed and churned up, they created this nasty, slimy, viscous soup. This soup would consume countless men on both sides in the coming weeks. Private Cyril Lee gives an account that's jarring to us but would have been fairly common at the time. He says, quote, I tried to assist a lad in a copse about a hundred yards from our jumping-off trench. I called to him, Are you hit, son? He said, Yes, I am. There was no hope of getting to him as he was in the middle of this huge sea of mud struggling. I saw a small sapling. We tried to bend it over to this boy. The look on the lad's face, it was really pathetic, but I, I couldn't do a thing. Had I bent a little more, I should have gone in with him. Had anyone gone near this sea of mud, we should have gone in with him as so many did. End quote. It's actually fascinating as I studied this and researched and read. So many people that were there referred to the sea of mud, that it, it's something, even the colorized photos that you see um, or that I've been posting, they just don't bring it, they don't do it justice. And they are amazing. Uh, I'm not knocking them. They're phenomenal and they really give an idea and a sense of what this must have looked like. But to have been there, to see it in person, to see a man sink 10 feet into mud and just disappear, um, my limited imagination really has a hard time grasping it. So, um, yeah, so that's where we're going to stop with the story of Private Lee. Um, we're going to do a two-parter. They'll both be released today. Um, so you'll get both episodes, but I didn't want to do one giant episode. Uh, it was voted on Instagram that we would do two smaller ones. Um, so this is where we will finish the first portion of the Battle of Passchendaele. And uh, stay tuned and check out the second portion, which should be out in uh, no time at all. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and uh, we will catch you on the flip side.